You're listening to Plenary Session. All right, in this episode, we're going to talk about a few things. First, I'm very briefly going to mention the randomized phase two trial in the New England Journal of Medicine of Elopomdex. Then I'm going to spend most of the time talking about immunotherapy combinations and multiple myeloma, the known unknowns by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Finally, I want to mention one brief comment that appeared in a editorial written in the Lancet Oncology entitled Nine Weeks That Matter for Patients with Gastric Cancer. And then our special guest today, Eric Turner, former FDA reviewer, psychiatry faculty at OHSU. This one is going to be great, so stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. First up this week, I want to talk a little bit about some of the interesting oncology papers that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in the last week. Now, I want to spend most of my time talking about a paper that came from the US FDA, for which I have a few more thoughts, but I just very briefly wanted to mention that we have a randomized control trial, a small phase two study of 117 participants, just a randomized trial of ELO plus POMDEX versus POMDEX alone for multiple myeloma. I think I've spoken with a few people offline uh, prior to taping this, and I guess um, many of us agree that uh, we have no idea why this is even in the New England Journal of Medicine. So you're saying if you combine ELO with an imid and dexamethasone, you improve PFS over an imid and dexamethasone alone. Hmm, we knew that with a phase three study where ELO was combined with Revdex. This adds nothing. It's an underpowered phase two study. It should be published in a uh, lesser journal. It has no novel biological insight. It's a Me Too study. It's uh, quite uh, unimpressive and uninteresting. Um, it's uh, it's really showing you uh, what uh, is actually not surprising at all. Um, it would be more interesting to uh, evaluate this drug's effect on all-cause mortality or to test in a different setting or to publish a phase three of this trial, but uh, I really struggle to understand why this was published. And I think one of the ways in which we might start to understand why these kinds of studies are published is if the journal would release their reprint sales by company, by year, by specific paper. I think that would add a bit of transparency to the process, and interested parties could try to figure out why some papers are picked over other papers, particularly early phase papers. Why are they picked um, when they really don't add too much? Okay, that's enough about that. Let's talk about what actually interests me. The paper by the good folks at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Oncology Drug Products Division entitled Immunotherapy Combinations and Multiple Myeloma, The Known Unknowns. Mm, they're getting a little Rumsfeldy, if you ask me. Well, this is based on the FDA's oversight of two clinical trials, Keynote 183 and 185, which were randomized control trials where Pembro was combined with an imid backbone chemotherapy and multiple myeloma. Both of these trials have overall mortality that trends towards harm that strongly looks like the addition of Pembro to this treatment regimen increases mortality. That is quite concerning, and the FDA has appropriately put a halt on them and uh, issued some changes in the information uh, around these drugs. The FDA makes several points in their paper, and I just want to hit a few of them. 
One, they talk about how currently, based on a really nice annals of oncology paper, we have 50 PD-1 inhibitory agents in development and more than 1,500 clinical trials investigating these agents in various cancers. We have a me-too mentality in cancer medicine, and nowhere is that more evident than the checkpoint inhibitor class of medications. Okay, the next thing you should know about combining a PD-1 antibody with traditional immunomodulatory drugs used in myeloma is there wasn't really single agent activity of this drug. So they talk about an early non-randomized trial of nivolumab in all hematologic cancers. There was a response rate of 30% and 40% in large cell and follicular, but there was a 4% response rate, only one patient with multiple myeloma who had a response, and that person also got radiation, which is a bit confounding for a single arm study. Um, so it is clear that this drug has a very poor single agent activity. And that's something that I've talked about before on this podcast uh, that I think is quite concerning for cancer drug development. To my knowledge, there is no truly transformational drug in oncology that lacks altogether single agent activity. In contrast, the most transformative drug, imatinib and CML, had a, I believe, 98% um, complete hematologic response rate in the phase one dose escalation study in the New England Journal of Medicine, now about 17, 18 years ago. Meanwhile, drugs that lack single agent activity are generally quite marginal. Bishal and I wrote that paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology that I've talked about several times on this podcast um, that really show these drugs, when they do come to market, the few drugs uh, that actually succeed and make it to market, i.e. success meaning making it to market, um, don't seem to succeed so well when it comes to patients because they offer marginal survival benefits with something like a 1.6 month median survival benefit, if it shows a survival benefit at all. So I think these are drugs that generally are marginal non-transformative drugs. And yet, the FDA writes this sentence, quote, Despite limited single-agent activity, investigators pursued trials in which PD-1 drugs were combined with active agents commonly used in the disease. And here, they go a little bit further. Combination drug development using cytotoxic drugs has been ongoing in oncology since the 1960s, and curative multidrug regimens have been established for both heme and solid tumor cancers. But these regimens have generally been created by combining drugs with known activity against a disease. The experience in multiple myeloma sounds a cautionary note. Combination immunotherapy may not follow the cytotoxic drug paradigm. But really, why are you combining a drug with no single agent activity with standard treatment options? The FDA notes trials of PD1 or PDL1 inhibitors in smoldering myeloma were placed on a full hold pending further evaluation of these agents in advanced disease settings. After all, why would we want to subject patients with a disease state that is currently untreated and the standard of care is really observation, why would we subject them to a treatment option that may potentially increase their mortality when you have not even established that this class of medications has a benefit in late stage or advanced or multiply refractory cancer patients? Finally, the FDA says, although many oncology approvals of single-agent PD-1 and PDL one drugs have been based on durable response rate in single-arm studies, it is difficult to adequately assess efficacy and safety of a drug combination without a control group. Overall survival can accurately be assessed only in a randomized trial. It is a bit of a shock to me that they are admitting this. So here are what I think the four takeaway points are of this paper. One, Reading between the lines, you see an FDA that um, is a bit uh, critical 
uh, like chiding a, a young child. They're critical of the industry for pursuing so many redundant, duplicative PD-1 trials and even pursuing these in combinations for which the drug has no true single agent activity. Yet, why are there so many trials ongoing for drugs that lack single agent activity? In a prior episode of this podcast, I mentioned that this is the real legacy of palbociclib. You have a drug in breast cancer that costs around $10,000 per month of treatment, and it has widespread use in a very common cancer. It has tremendous market share. It makes billions of dollars, and it has yet to this day, years after it's been approved, yet to this day, I think at least three years, perhaps even four years now since it's been approved, has yet to show an overall survival benefit in any clinical trial or any clinical setting. Neither does ribocyclib or abemocyclib or its other, you know, cookie-cutter me-too drugs. That is quite concerning. You can make billions and billions of dollars in oncology. You can get all the market share you want, and you are not really asked if your drug improves all-cause mortality um, in a highly lethal condition uh, even many years later. Uh, if you ask why does the industry pursue so many drugs that lack single-agent activity, I think the one group that probably shouldn't be asking that question is the US FDA, because I think they know the answer. Here's why. Imagine you could conduct just one trial of a novel drug, and if that trial was successful, you would come to market. The only bar between you and the market is a single p-value of 0.05. If you beat that p-value, you're on the market. And it really doesn't matter if the endpoint is survival or even a progression-free survival. You are pretty flexible. Then add in this. It also doesn't matter if there are other negative trials. You know, if we've done a couple of clinical studies and some are negative but some are positive, we will focus only on the positive trials. And we saw that with adjuvant sunitinib and kidney cancer. There's a cooperative group study that's negative. But, you know, the dose, the dose wasn't given to the proper levels, and that's why it was negative, of course. It's not because the drug doesn't work. Um, and DFS is positive, and it doesn't matter that the overall survival curves are superimposable. That doesn't matter either. The DFS is positive, one out of two trials, good enough, you're on the market, P.05, enjoy, enjoy the spoils of the market. Now, it also doesn't matter how toxic the drug is. Let's think about neratinib in uh, adjuvant uh, HER2 positive breast cancer, 40% grade 3, 4 diarrhea, grade 3 diarrhea being more than seven stools from baseline, it doesn't matter, you're on the market. It also doesn't matter how marginal the benefit. So what about erlotinib and pancreatic cancer with a 10-day survival benefit? It's on the market. And you couple these four things that the FDA controls, which is what's the threshold of statistical significance? How many clinical trials do you need? How will you interpret other clinical trials? Do you consider toxicity? And do you consider the magnitude of benefit? Sorry, five things that are really under their auspices. They have the legal authority to clarify those standards. You combine those five things that they are quite lax with with the fact that CMS must pay for any FDA-approved drug, and the CMS cannot negotiate price. And now you have created a system, as Christopher McCabe and Sean Milan Cody and I talk about in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, where it actually becomes profitable to test a portfolio of likely completely inert compounds, merely hoping for the inevitable false positives of clinical trials. And I, and I don't believe the industry is actually testing inert compounds, okay? But what I do believe the thought experiment highlights is it provides some clarity why drugs that have so little promise are being tested so many times. Why would you test a drug with so little promise? So little promise is better than totally inert. 
But it's not like these are highly promising drugs with robust preclinical data. They don't have that. But the reason you could still run a portfolio where you test things of little promise is because the bar for approval is low. By chance alone, you may be getting some hits or you'll get some benefit. You can bias your trial design in many, many ways to favor your drug winning. And if you are lucky and get even one of many of these trials to be successful, you can make billions and billions of dollars, pay off all the losses, and still turn a handsome profit. And that's why they're doing this. So when the FDA chides them, criticizes them for pursuing this drug without single agent activity, they should realize that they are the ones that have set the preconditions that allow that to be profitable. Okay, the next question. Why are there trials launched already in smoldering myeloma? We currently lack robust clinical trial data that treating smoldering myeloma versus treating it when some of those patients progress to myeloma, but probably not all of those patients, but some progress to myeloma. There's no data that says you should treat smoldering myeloma early, i.e. you will improve overall survival. There's a small study by Jesus San Miguel in New England Journal of Medicine that is really laughable because if you progress on the control arm of that study, you are not getting United States standard of care therapy post-protocol. You're getting really poor suboptimal therapy. I'm sorry to say, that trial does not change the practice of smoldering myeloma. We have an ongoing Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study. We yet to see the results of OS. They put out a press release saying PFS is positive. I said that was a triviality. You know, we'll see when we get there, when we actually get some real data. Uh, we have to live this medicine by press release, so I have no idea why, but that's the way the world is right now. Um, why run a smoldering trial at all? That's the real question. Three, the FDA is absolutely right. You do need a control arm to rule out survival decrements. But why are they not realizing this when it comes to the many, many drugs that are approved on the basis of single arm studies, many of which never have randomized control trials establishing survival benefits post-market? Nothing is ruling out the survival decrement in these settings. And we have some work in this space that I don't want to scoop everything, so I don't want to really twist this point too hard. But the, the point here is really that they do see you do need randomization, not always to show survival benefit, but certainly to exclude survival decrement. And we have some drugs on the market that have been on the market for many years, and we just don't have that. What rules out the decrement there? We have measures of activity. Okay, so putting this all together, what do I think the real title of this piece should be? It should be this, increased deaths in multiple myeloma trials that were run with very little rationale. When we began looking in the mirror at the US Food and Drug Administration, that's the real title of the paper. The real paper should have been written, what are the things that we have done to the marketplace that incentivize this activity and make it not only that some people are engaging in these kinds of large clinical trial portfolios run with low rationale, but that the entire industry is gearing up this way. Um, it's because largely of preconditions set by the US FDA. So I think that's the sobering part here um, that is being missed in this commentary. And I think the, the irony is, is not lost on me, perhaps lost on some other people, but it's not lost on me. All right, well, on that positive note, we'll switch gears and talk about one other thing. Okay the nine weeks that matter for patients with gastric cancer. This was brought to my attention by Dr. Matthew. There's a line in this editorial that I think is so spot on um, that um, we could 
learn a lot from it. And I think um, it's just worth reading it and just worth thinking about it. So here's what they say. Additionally, the authors conclude in their discussion that trifluridine tipiracil has a clinically meaningful benefit in terms of PFS. After six months, 85% of patients in the treatment group either had disease progression or had died compared with 92% of the placebo group. However, the difference in median PFS was roughly six days. Although this difference might be statistically significant, it is of little clinical relevance. We as doctors need to be careful not to be driven by an inherent industry bias in our conclusions, as was shown for surgical trials and oncology randomized control trials. And indeed, they are right. When you start calling six-day differences in PFS clinically meaningful, I think you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, for whom? For the company that is conducting the study or for people who have that condition? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And you have to ask yourself, are these the trials you should be running? All right, now for the interview with Dr. Turner. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Eric Turner. Dr. Turner is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry here at OHSU in the VA. He is a practicing psychiatrist. Uh, He's a master of evidence-based medicine, of evidence synthesis and appraisal. And he is likely most well-known to the listening audience for his seminal 2008 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Selective Publication of Antidepressant Trials and Its Influence on Apparent Efficacy. We'll talk about that in this podcast. But first, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Vinay. We uh, we see each other from time to time around this hospital. Right, right. We get lunch here and there. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy our discussions. Me too. Um, and there are many things that we're going to talk about today. So let's let's just get right into it. Your 2008 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think um, many people may know you first, or perhaps best, for this publication. Um, this was a publication where you compared the published literature on the SSRI class of medications and the effect size, and then the published and unpublished studies and the effect size. And you found rather provocatively that when you look at unpublished studies, you diminute the effect size. You take away something from the effect size. And this work came out of your time at the US Food and Drug Administration. I'm wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about how you came up with this idea how you actually carried it out and um, how you, I think, really set the stage for what would follow, which has been a large body of work in this space. Uh, Sure, Uh, thank you. Um, Yeah, I would say it it, uh, came about through having worked as a reviewer at the FDA. I was there for three years, and prior to working there, I had been at uh, NIMH uh, intramural and believed that if you're at NIH, you should be uh, at the epicenter of, of uh, evidence-based medicine, or at least uh, you know, uh, I sh- one should know everything, have access to all the knowledge one needs about one's field. Mm-hmm. And then upon uh, you know getting at the FDA, I realized <coughs> I, I didn't uh, I didn't know squat, <laughs> quite bluntly. Um, I was assigned a, uh, a new drug application for a drug that was uh, being put forth as a new antidepressant, which ultimately. Fast forwarding ahead, never got approved. Mm. Um, 
But I saw, was struck immediately as I started going through the, the, the NDA, New, New Drug Application Packet, that there are all these negative trials, and I had never, never seen a negative trial before. I could never, having... You couldn't name one you'd read in a journal. No. I had seen nothing mm-hmm. but positive trials. Antidepressants always work. Drug mm-hmm. was always better than placebo. Mm-hmm. The, the efficacy was, wasn't in question, mm-hmm. which is hard to fathom now because there's so much questioning of it now. It's like, oh, yeah, everyone knows antidepressants have efficacy problems. But back then, it was like everyone believed they always worked. Mm. So, and, and you were a practicing psychiatrist at the time. Yes. Yeah, to practice. And, and I think that was part of the uh, motivation and that I had this other hat as a, uh, a part-time private practice and thought, now, wait a minute, this is this is wrong. I, here I have this other identity where I, I'm not supposed to be aware of this information, yet I do know it. And uh, so it was, uh, it was this disconnect, uh, seeing this disconnect between what the typical practicing uh, psychiatrist uh, didn't know and what I happen to know as a result of being on the inside. And what was that moment like when you first looked at this package and saw all these negative studies in this in this report? Was it kind of like, oh my God, uh, like the end of the sixth sense? Was it kind of like this transformation? <laughs> you reimagined everything you had witnessed. Yeah, uh, yeah it's... Um yeah, kind of a, a feeling of uh, disillusionment and like uh, being betrayed uh, almost. And mm-hmm. I asked my, uh, or disbelief, I think was the mm-hmm. first, uh, with, you know, denial is the first uh, right, right, is, stages. Yeah. Of, Five stages um, of grief, right? Right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I spoke to my boss about it. I said, what's, what's, what's with all these uh, right. negative studies? Is there something wrong here? And he says, oh, and he just chuckles. He says, oh, no, it happens all the time. Uh, about 40% of trials, uh, you know, the drug doesn't be placebo, and I'm, He's chuckling about it, and I'm thinking, meanwhile, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Why Why should he know about it? And now I know about it, but all, there's all these doctors on the outside that are clueless about it. And one of the things um, you've told me over the years is that a lot of this information was out there in plain sight. It was just hard to see. Right. Um, one of the first things I learned at the FDA was that the product of my you know my work output of being a review if the drug was approved it mm-hmm. would be put up on the FDA website mm-hmm. for the world to see which was a tremendous gave me a tremendous sense of responsibility um, but on the other hand so it was technically it was there it was it, it was there for the public to see but you had to know where to look where to look and how to look and so forth and that's no easy task you know a few years ago i did a project with jeff bn who's the chief now in medicine and we looked at um, fda reviewers and where they went and we went to the website and we kind of dug it out and i i like to describe it as you know i describe it as eating a pomegranate there's fruit in there but it's a heck of time to get to Uh, and (laughs) and that's what it feels like going to the fda website there's fruit there um, but it's not so easy to get to so you Mm -hmm. came to ohsu from the fda you had had this experience of knowing that there is more to clinical trials in psychiatry than has been broadly publicized or disclosed. And then you gave them about this idea to look at it systematically. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to this New England Journal paper. Yeah, there was one other mm-hmm. kind of a frustration uh, of having been, you know, being back on the outside and not having access to this information. I mean, having access to it through the website, but being once again around people who, you know, the, the universe believed that these drugs are infallible. And there were some uh, when I came to the to the VA, we wanted to do some uh, placebo-controlled trials of of medications, and um, it was obvious to me why we needed placebo because oftentimes the drugs did not beat placebo. Right. But I had people on IRBs 
telling me, uh, uh, oh, that's unethical to, to use placebo when you have a known effective drug. And I go, wait a minute, your premise of a known effective drug is wrong. These aren't effective drugs. Drugs that are approved are not effective 100% of the time, like you think. They're effective only perhaps, you know, half, maybe a bit more than half the time mm-hmm. in terms of effective meaning better than placebo, which mm-hmm. is a whole other discussion as to what that means. Um, so it but, sounds like you had you had two awakenings. One, when you go into the FDA and you see people chuckle, oh, of course, not all these trials are positive. Exactly. And then the second, you come out of the FDA and you're back into the world where the belief is that the SSRIs are infallible. They always work. Every trial is positive. Exactly. Mm. And, and the combination of those experiences. And they thought that when, you know, that, that I was just making this argument as, uh, as self-serving. Pedantic, oh, right, you just uh, want to get your trial approved. And, I see. Well, that's what you say. And they'd roll their eyes. Oh, well, everyone knows these drugs work all the time. I and, see. And, and it dawned upon me. There's no way that they're going to believe it until it gets into the published literature. I see. So I need to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them <laughs> and get this out there. I see. And that led you to this work, um, which was and remains uh, a very highly cited and seminal paper in this space of selective reporting or publication bias. And I think people have drifted from publication bias to selective reporting bias because over time, um, and, and you were careful to use the word selective publication because a lot of the times it's the manufacturer who chooses not to submit it for publication. It's not the journal saying no. It's the mm-hmm. manufacturer who's selective about what they publish and when they publish it. Mm-hmm. You would agree. Yeah, I, I, yes, I would agree. And, and we were, uh, the, the, the editor of the New England Journal uh, was careful to, in the, in the final stages of uh, revision, to be sure that we uh, uh, were agnostic about the cause, whether it was the people submitting the journal articles or whether it was the on the receiving end. I see, right. Uh, you, you know, the, there could very well be something on the receiving end because As journals, well, I see. Right. They, they, they cover their impact factors. Uh-huh. They don't want to be publishing uh, yeah. so-called negative trials. Yeah, but, that's uh, I've said on this podcast that um, you don't get a lot of sites by publishing a failed study, a failed drug that goes nowhere. That has a very limited citation trail. Right. The other thing, I want it to be very clear about to listeners is there are some psychiatrists who believe that SSRIs have absolutely no value. You're not one of those people. You believe they are effective, better than placebo. They're just not as effective as we thought they were. Uh, correct, right. The glass is not as full as we would like it to be or as we used to think it was. Mm-hmm. It used to be seen as overflowing, brimming over, yeah, right. right. <laughs> and now we know that that's not at all the case. Now one can say, oh, well, that I, I think uh, it's it's separating the two questions, how effective versus an, an absolute all or none. And I think to reduce it to a dichotomous all or none uh, uh, proposition uh, kind of oversimplifies. Yeah, and, and you know, I run into this problem with um, this idea that we'll sequence all cancer patients and we'll have cures for everybody. And I like to say, look, there's something there, there's some benefit, but it's mostly hype. You know, I mm-hmm. take that position. I don't say there's no benefit, it'll never work in anybody. And I also don't say it's gonna work in the majority of people the way the kind of narrative is, the way the kind of bubble is, as you described, you know. Right. Uh, there's some nuance there. Right. Nuance is not too popular. People, people like to believe it's all good or it's all bad. Right. And if you say it's not quite, if it's not all good, oh, oh, it must be all bad then. And you know what else is not uh, popular? Moderation. Because some right. people think if something's good for you, you just take it in unlimited quantity and it's got to be better for you. Exactly. Yeah, these are two tough concepts in this world today. I want to clarify one thing about mm-hmm. the terminology of you know yeah. selective publication, publication yeah. bias, because the terminology is a bit all over the place. Um, I... I 
according to Cochrane, and in, in one paper that, uh, of mine that was uh, reviewed, I was uh, um, corrected uh, to use the term reporting bias as the most general term. And then under that, you have publication bias, mm-hmm. which is the complete non-reporting of a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And then another type of reporting bias is outcome reporting bias, where mm-hmm. you, there's a picking and choosing, oh, well, this didn't, it didn't turn out this way, but we'll still publish it, but we'll, we'll use a secondary outcome, uh, or we'll use, uh, we'll, we'll dream up something completely that wasn't even in the protocol at all, and we'll keep uh, torturing the data, as they say, long enough, and it'll eventually confess to anything. And can you, and can you tell listeners, and I, I know we both agree with this, it is vitally important when you run a clinical trial that you pre-specify your primary endpoint and you stick to that primary endpoint. And why is that the case? Why is it important? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's like, a, it, I'd say it like a, uh, it, like a contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, before you, um, you undertake anything important, whether you're buying a house, um, betting on a horse. Uh, Sometimes I talk about the uh, horse race analogy. You Mm -hmm. you have to bet on a horse and live with live with your decision later you you don't get to watch the horse race and then say and then go to the <laughs> think then go to the booth and say oh i uh, yeah i picked the one that won yeah and he'll roll up you know, the roll his eyes there and and uh <laughs> you have to pick beforehand and and that's exactly and why you have to live with it right? and you have to live with it because uh these trials are powered to test usually one or maybe at most two or three but usually one fundamental right. claim of efficacy they have the power to rule in a certain treatment effect and the ability to rule out a certain treatment effect um, and and that's really the one shot you get at it and if after the fact you know you shoot at the wall and then you draw the bullseye you're gonna hit the mark you exactly. know yeah it, it's that kind of classic fallacy Texas sharpshooter fallacy another uh, example uh, since today is election day yeah uh, thinking of uh, a certain politician who is in office now mm-hmm. who famously or infamously uh, proclaimed before the before the election he said that he would he would honor the results of the election and then there was a pregnant pause if I win. <laughs> so that's not the way it works. You yeah. don't get to, uh, but, but unfortunately, but that's not the way it works in elections, but that is the way it works. In clinical trials. In clinical trials. People say, okay, this, this is how I'm gonna do it. Here's my primary outcome. I'm putting my bet on this horse. This is my outcome. Um, and then, and then you run the trial. You know, it's, it's embedded, it, you've written it into your protocol. You get to see how it turns out. And oh, a p-value is greater than greater than 0.05. Oh, this won't this won't get into a big journal. Mm-hmm. This may not get into any journal. So hmm, let me look at it this other way. Mm-hmm. So you're not honoring the you know your original contract that you made with with the field of science. Yeah, and I think um, we've seen a number of publications recently where uh, a statistician uh, have been told, uh, you know, go into that data set and you don't come back until you get me that P less than <laughs> .05. And I saw a Halloween pumpkin being tweeted online and it said P equals .06. So <laughs> oh, I saw, yeah, I that's saw that That's too, a really right? terrifying thing. <laughs> So back to this idea of your in your paper, um, y- what you did was you took a set of antidepressants, you compared the published literature to the published and unpublished trials, and mm-hmm. what you found was um, that the published literature was almost overwhelmingly positive, mm-hmm. 
and the unpublished literature was almost overwhelmingly the other way. And when you put them together, it was still positive, mm-hmm. but much less than you would have thought. Yeah, it was about, if you, if you look at, uh, at the trials and oversimplified mm-hmm. uh, binary terms as whether they, they reach statistical significance or not on the primary outcome, then yes, essentially all the trials were, with a few exceptions, all the trials appeared to be positive in the literature. But if you looked at the same cohort of trials in, according to the FDA, then it was, it was a 50-50 split. Now that doesn't mean the positive, you know, the, yeah. the, the 50% negative cancels out the 50% positive. No, they're still more positive overall. Uh, when you, like well, in aggregate of all the trials, published and unpublished, it looks like there are more positive studies overall. Well, it was it was pretty much 50-50. Oh, split. really? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was really yeah. It's closer and, than you thought. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and but. But again, that's that's an it's a not a statistically rigorous way of of looking at it. Right, you, right. Using meta analysis, yeah. if you for each each of the twelve drugs, yeah. each drug did uh, nevertheless um, separate from placebo. And the endpoints used in these depression studies in these years was primarily the Hamilton depression score. Was that right? Uh, it was either that. It was most often the ha- the HamD. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the next most common was the uh, Madras scale, mm-hmm. the Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale. So I that see. was a second. Uh, and my question about the control arm is, um, and you've made the clear end point that I'll agree with 100%, these need to be placebo controlled. My question is, do they need to be active placebo controlled? Um, for listeners, what I think the distinction is, is that when you give somebody a placebo, you can give them a sugar pill, um, mm-hmm. and they will have the psychological belief or comfort that it may be providing some value to them. You can give them the active treatment, but some people getting the active treatment may notice, say, a metallic taste in their mouth, or they may notice, say, a little bit of dry eye or dry mouth or something like that. They'll get mm-hmm. some little hint on average that this may not be a sugar pill, mm-hmm. and that may lead to the psychological perception of well-being. And thus, some um, methodologists argue that for some trials where the endpoint is subjective, uh, uh, can only be assessed from someone's internal experience, um, that a good control might be something that causes just a touch of dry mouth, a Mm -hmm. little metallic taste, Mm -hmm. um, just to make the person receiving it, but of course not have the active ingredient, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor. were any of these trials active placebo trials? What are your feelings on active placebo in the in the antidepressant space? Uh, yeah, th- that's a good point. Yeah, the the, the uh, adequacy of the blind uh, is that uh, compromised to some degree, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of trials have they're either controlled only with placebo or they're placebo and and there's an active control ah, also. See, yeah. But the active control is is there for. Another reason is not it, 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 there's no expectation that the study drug will be superior to the active control. For instance, some new antidepressant doesn't have to beat Prozac. Oh, I see. Right, you're saying active um, control, i.e., other SSRI. Uh, uh, yeah. When I talk about active placebo, I mean like uh, like a sugar pill with just a little touch of metallic taste on it. Right, right. Uh-huh. Like if you had a drug, I think what you're what, what you uh, what you're getting at is perhaps you have a drug, say it has uh, antihistaminic side effects. Exactly. You might perhaps you have a uh, Benadryl. Yeah, as you a, put as a, a control, little, a little dot of right. Benadryl, a little bit of atrophy, you know, that kind right, of anticholinergic right. kind of thing. Exactly right. Right. Were there any of those trials? Uh, no, the, mm-hmm. none of those were like that. But. I would be quite interested to see that because, as you know, um, you know, when it comes to the device literature, we're increasingly learning that mechanical interventions that improve subjective endpoints, when the control arm is the simulation of that procedure, um, you know, for instance, in one of these vertebroplasty sham studies, one of the things they did was this is the injection of polyacrylamide cement uh, for painful osteoporotic fractures, and one of the things they did in the in the sham group was they opened the cement 
which has that kind of acetone nail polish smell, and they wafted it to the patient, and then they threw it in the trash and put saline in. Huh. And right, and so that, that, that's all part of the psychological idea that we're doing uh. something, right? And so I do wonder a little bit for some of these pills. Yeah, yeah, blinding is definitely definitely an issue. And so one question, one one could always question the adequacy of the blind post-hoc. And you can actually test for that. That's something that's not not done enough, very seldom. We actually ask the patients at the end of the trial, so which one did you think you got? Exactly. And then you could find how often, you know, if they're maybe they're right. Maybe maybe it really isn't blind. You know, we have a paper under review on this topic, so I'm not going to say too much. But uh, we actually looked, and Consort actually stripped that of one one of their, in their recent guidelines, they actually removed that rule. And, well, we've done some Mm -hmm. digging about that, and I don't want to, soon to come, soon to come. I wanted to ask you, You've done this work, and in the decade that's followed since your paper, it's now been 10 years out, um, you were once sort of a, a lone wolf. Uh, there, weren't, there weren't many people doing that kind of work back then. Would you say that's fair to say? Right, right. And now you're a wolf in a pack. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are a bunch of people doing this work. It's actually mm-hmm. gotten some traction. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel good about that? I mean, do you feel like what you started has snowballed a bit? Oh, I... I Certainly can't take credit for starting anything, mm-hmm. but it, I, I think when I uh, back when I was first doing this work and I went to a, uh, yeah, I, I did feel like a lone wolf among my usual colleagues here here locally. Uh, but then upon going to uh, certain conferences, in particular the Peer Review Congress, mm-hmm. I found out oh, well, there was a lot of people doing this kind of work. Right. I, I mean, perhaps not a lot worldwide. They're, they're spread quite thinly, but uh, but it was kind of finding your tribe and mm-hmm. a lot of people. A lot of people like you. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm. I wasn't quite um, as early as you. I was a few years later before I got into right. it. Yeah, but but no question about it. I think you know one could do a uh, a paper looking at the number of papers at at not only at uh, reporting bias but but related concepts like uh, conflict of interest. You know that's another thing that's caught fight. So all these uh, you know papers and and uh, you know a degree of interest on the integrity of research. There's just so much more going on these days than there used to be. If someone has a massive hemorrhage, we can put a Band-Aid on it, or we can tie off the artery. You know, we can tie off the bleeding vessel. Do you feel as if some of the work on selective reporting has sought to put a Band-Aid on the problem and not tie off the vessel? And by that I mean the Mm. root cause of the problem is that so much (coughs) of the biomedical literature, the design, the conduct, the analysis, the writing, the dissemination, the marketing, is controlled by the same entity that stands to make or lose $10 billion from the result of that study. How can we have a system where the entire research agenda and process for some of these uh, branded pharmaceutical drugs is entirely in the hands of the entity that has such a tremendous stake in that outcome? Isn't that the bleeding vessel? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think that's one of, I, I think Band-Aid is probably, I, I wouldn't put it quite so strongly, right, uh, because okay. I think we are, there have been a number of measures that have taken place. I mean, there's all the attention that we're, that, that we're giving the, these, this type of phenomenon, and, and um, there's been... Such as pre-registration po- and... Yeah, for, policy yeah, right. changes. Yeah, clinicaltrials.gov <laughs> is, um, everyone knows what clinicaltrials.gov, and it used to be 15 years ago, it wasn't used at all. We had uh, FDA legisl- uh, legislation, uh, FDA uh, 2007, which stands for Food and Drug Administration Amendments Act. So it's now it's a 
a legal requirement that clinical trials be registered and that their results be posted on clinicaltrials.gov. So that's so there's um, uh, you know segueing to conflict of interest. It's you know it's well accepted. That, you know um, uh, journals have to list authors are asked. Let me exactly. stop there. Correct, I, mean, right, I, mean, yeah. I didn't say uh, authors are required to list or at least to state what their conflicts of interest uh, are. Now, I'm stopping short of saying that they do list every one of them because I'm part of a, a group of uh, uh, authors who found that uh-huh. they're not disclosing. They're, they're actually not 100% complete. And we've done some studies where we find there's lots of omissions of disclosure. And here, I actually right. have a list um, right here of the number of uh, biomedical authors that I'm aware of who've ever paid a price um, for not disclosing industry tries, and it's uh, it's one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you're right. I mean, I guess I, I didn't want to. I guess Band I, Band Aid was underselling it. But but I think uh, yeah. getting at the root, it, it, you yeah. talk about getting to the root of the problem. Yeah. And I think there's some um, some incentives built into the system, and it applies not only to uh, industry, but also even to academia, where, you know, we all are kind of expected to, it's you, it's prestigious to to get your study into a, a high-impact journal, and, a, and people feel they've succeeded if they get a statistically significant result. Mm-hmm. Um, and they failed if they haven't. And they, exactly. Mm-hmm. It, they, they feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason for this outcome re- outcome reporting bias. This torturing the data until it until it confesses. They go back. Oh, this can't be right. Um, you know. And let's talk about that a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, uh, there's been a number of really nice um, investigations in recent years where people look at um, some very prominent clinical trials that have been published. And in the published manuscript, it says, you know, we looked to see if psoriasis got better at 24 weeks and statistically significant p-value, it was better at 24 weeks. Then you start digging into the clinicaltrials.gov and the protocol, and -hmm. it said, we sought to measure psoriasis getting better at 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And now you're reporting 26 weeks in the manuscript. So what's going on? And the answer almost overwhelmingly is that at 12 weeks it wasn't better mm-hmm. you picked the horse that lost mm-hmm. but now that you know the horse that won <laughs> you knew that your horse was galloping a little faster a few a few steps further <laughs> past the finish line you draw a new finish line right and 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 you believe and you have evidence of that this is not an isolated uh, problem that this actually does happen quite a bit in mm-hmm. some of these clinical studies mm-hmm so why are the journals? Yeah, why uh, the journals are allowing this, and yes. the whole review process is allowing this. So this is part of the problem, the way the whole process is constructed. So getting back to the the, the horse race analogy, it encourages you, allows you to basically see uh, see which horse won the race, and then place your bets afterwards. Okay, you 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 design your study, you you collect your data, you analyze your data, you engage, you can potentially engage in the, in the phenomenon of uh, p-hacking, also called harking. Yeah, uh, hypothesizing harking. after results are known. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you submit it. So you're submitting it, and yes, there's a method section, and people reading them are going to get the idea, oh, this is what they planned. Right. But it's not necessarily what they planned. Right. It's what they planned after they <laughs> yeah. saw the results. Right. So, and um, a few years ago, Ben Goldacre um, took on a little project where his job was just to kind of name and shame. Um, he really publicized these examples, and he, you know, asked journals to state on paper, "What are you going to do about this?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember, and I, I've got to try to find this quote, but I remember reading a quote by um, a prominent journal editor 
who had previously voiced um, sort of ambivalence towards conflict of interest, saying uh. that he didn't think it was a big deal. And then he said about Ben Goldacre, well, this is just a guy trying to sell his book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, that's uh, really ironic that, you know, you, you never <laughs> seem to really get conflict of interest until it comes to Ben Goldacre selling one of his little, one of his books. Okay, but that's right, right. as if that's the biggest problem of conflict we're dealing with. Uh-huh. Um, but um, I don't think it went over too well. I mean, there was a lot of resentment and resistance to Ben mm-hmm. Goldacre pointing that out. Mm-hmm. And you have also looked at this topic. Is that right? Um, I mean, that, that was embedded in my uh, New England Journal paper and, yeah. and later subsequent paper by using, contrasting what's in, what, you know, what's in the FDA review with what's in the eventual journal article with antidepressants, later with antipsychotics, and also with anti-anxiety drugs. But I, I want to yeah, sort of uh, back, segue yeah. out to, um, or come back to the incentives issue yeah. and how the uh, a, a root of this problem is the, um, is the peer review system, in, in my opinion. And so um, I want to give a shout out to someone who's taking an approach uh, which I think gets gets at the root. It's sort of a radical approach, and it's called registered reports. Um, and what that is is a um, is a two stage review model, where they um, you, you submit to it. There, there's about 140 journals plus that are signed up uh, that that have signed on to this model already, primarily in the realm of psychology, but some a couple in uh, general medicine too. And you. Um, there's a stage one review, which takes place before the study is even conducted. So stage one review, they, they basically, the reviewer looks at you know, you looks ju- at the plan, uh-huh. is this good science? You judge it based on the methods and the introduction, uh-huh. and then you commit to accepting or not. Exactly, uh-huh. provisional acceptance. Right. And then you see the, the, the scientist goes out, does the study. Um, perhaps the p-value is very, quite possibly, uh, is non-significant. You then submit it for stage two review. Now what the issue that they've had on occasion, a few of these re- early reviewers have said, "Oh, well, maybe this isn't so good after all." But they don't. <laughs> they say, "Sorry, you can't. You can't change your mind. You already said it was good science and it was a good question." So they they have to live with that. And the only way that they can get out of it and change their mind about it being a bad study instead right. of a good study is if protocol violations, uh, or deviations. Yeah, that right. they mm-hmm. said that they were going to recruit two hundred people and they. Re- recruited uh, 20. So what you mean to suggest is this heretic idea that a scientist should be judged not based on the <laughs> p-value they get, but the design and conduct of the trial. Exactly. Oh, wow. That um, Well, that's blasphemy, Eric. And, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to remove you from my list of KOLs. Uh, here, let me just cross you right out. Oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, but I think that's a great idea. And, uh, you know, I've, I, 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 to- I like that idea a lot. And I, I, and, um, I also toy with, like, different kind of spin-offs idea. What if you had a paper where the team that conducted the study wrote the um, methods and results, and then you got like three independent people to write the intro and discussion? You know, in the sense hmm. like, who who are you going to let really um, look at this data and decide what is the message here? What is the take home message? Mm-hmm. Is it always gonna be the investigator who, as you say, has this strong career incentive to kind of have changed the field? Mm-hmm. Um, or should it be somebody who's looking at it more impartially? Um, but I, I love the idea of, um, you know, uh, for instance, putting things in like a, a lock box. You know, you submit the trial, but the reviewer cannot see the result. It's in a lock box, and it's only unlocked when they decide to accept or not. Um, 
for some observational data sets, one of the things you could do is divide the data set and have a derivation and validation. You submit a paper using your derivation cohort, like this is what we think we find, and only after it's been accepted does somebody unlock half the data set mm -hmm. and rerun the analysis mm -hmm. to look at the valid, will it validate, you know? Um, and I the, thought about clinical trials doing that with a protocol, mm -hmm. and you submit the protocol for review, and the reviewers make a decision, is this good science or is this not good science? Right. And then, yeah, the lockbox idea. Then, then there's a stage two review, and that could be done after the study is actually complete. The problem with this is that there's, it doesn't rule out submission bias. Right. Because the whole You're thing, right. the study has been completed. Good point. Yeah. Right. So the, the nicer way to do it would be to submit earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's but, a it, but it's, I think, you know, a second best. It's a second best. Yeah. Um, because it is clear that no matter how pure or well-intentioned, even if you and I were the reviewers, probably we would still have a little bias mm -hmm. that on average we're more favorable to paper that found something provocative. I mean, it's just a human nature thing. Right. Human beings construct meaning from all sorts of events, and they try to construct meaning from even negative studies. Mm -hmm. You've done all this work, and you teach a course to the psychiatry residents every year. Um, wh what do you want psychiatry residents to learn uh, in their practice from this kind of research that you've been doing? What, what is the goal mm -hmm. of your course? Yeah, what do you seek to do in that course? Yeah, I think we um, talked to them early on about the uh, concept of a lifelong learner, uh, being uh, flexible and um, being open, open to change and open to um, you know, to, to revising one's opinion about things and not locking into anyone. You know, you have a commitment, you've seen one positive study, oh, this thing works, and you know, then you know, they never question it once again, but be prepared for you know, one positive trial, but it might be followed by a negative trial. Um, that's, that's one concept. I also, um, I kind of worry that uh, when people get in a rush, uh, that they uh, they feel pressured in, in the clinics and, and on the wards, and they, they kind of go fly by the seat of their pants, and they mm -hmm. maybe go by word of mouth. This oh, this is the way we did it back on my, you know, when I was in residency, and um, or they 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 talk to their colleague, and they say oh oh well, that's this is what I usually do. Oh, that's good enough for me. Um, they, it, it should be you know it should be evidence based, and but the evidence so taking the time even a little bit of time to consult the evidence, um, even when you're in a rush, and secondly, to be uh, prepared for that evidence to shift. Mm. And I guess that's that's probably near and dear to your heart it is, uh, yeah. with your medical reversal book. Yeah, it's near and dear to my heart, and I think, um, I think similarly, um, you know, and it, I always try to get across to trainees that I think um, maybe this magical time existed once upon a time where you finish your training and you know everything you need to know for your career. Right. Uh, but that isn't today. Mm -hmm. uh, today it's always shifting and the best thing you can do is to tr teach yourself to become an always learner, to always be engaging with the literature. Everything you think you know, um, double down on that, inve investigate it harder and more every year. Um, it's... Um, uh, there's a there's a good Mark Twain quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's something like it. It isn't what you don't know that hurts you; it's what you know for sure mm -hmm. that isn't so that hurts you. Mm -hmm. um, and and I see a lot of that in the trainees. Um, mm -hmm. That um, there's some things that we're just become we become blind to it. We don't even see it as something that we we've made a decision about. Um, it just falls within the backdrop of our day to day. We just do these things, um, and we forget that we should kind of interrogate those from time to time. Ask if the evidence has shifted, has it changed. Mm -hmm.
I wanted to ask you, stepping sideways a little bit, regulatory capture. When people use the phrase regulatory capture and the US Food and Drug Administration or regulatory capture in the SEC or regulatory capture and you know you pick the agency, <coughs> what do they mean by regulatory capture? Is it a real thing? Is it happening? I'm afraid. Afraid so. <laughs> what is it? Um, the the uh, industry being regula- regulated is um, rather than uh, comes to be seen as a client mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than rather than the entity to be regulated. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's evidence for this happening. You know, throughout government and various, perhaps not all, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, not all agencies, but. You know, this seems to have happened slowly uh, with the FDA. That would be, uh, I don't mean to say that as an absolute statement, uh, obviously, but, um, you know, there is this legislation that that passed way back in the early 90s called PDUFA, Prescription Drug User Fee Act of uh, 1992, I believe. And and the idea was uh, uh, that when, it used to be that the FDA could take its sweet time and uh, in, in looking at an application, and, and people would complain, "Oh, you're taking you're taking way too long," um, and uh, look look how much faster Europe is. And so they, uh, you know, AIDS uh, was an epidemic at the time, and people were saying, "You know, we need we need more AIDS drugs faster." And so the deal that was um, concocted was uh, PDUFA, and the idea user fees would be paid by the drug companies to get their drugs reviewed. And so they're using the FDA to, um, you know, to review it. So they, with that money, with those funds, they could hire reviewers, mm-hmm. such as myself uh, at the time. And uh, meet, hire meet new, timetables. New computer equipment and mm-hmm. timetables, mm-hmm. right. So those timetables made them very um, accountable mm-hmm. to industry. So suddenly they had meetings various places throughout the review cycle, and they had to commit to have the drug reviewed. Uh, a decision within uh, 12 months initially, it got backed up to 10 months. And I believe uh, uh, Joe Ross had an interesting paper in the last six months or a year where, this is Joe Ross from Yale who does just a, a lot of wonderful work mm-hmm, on FDA, mm-hmm. and I think it was something like d- drugs for which the decision is made um, as you're running up against that time window, that decision date, have more safety issues uh, than drugs for which the decision made at another time. In other words, it, it's probably not a good idea to rush someone who's making these decisions. And the other thing I want to tell listeners is, um, and, and a listener who knows better than me should correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the the, la- the user fees now have risen to something like $2.6 million per submission. That, that That's what it costs to like submit an NDA or something like that um, for, for consideration. Like it's in the millions of dollars. The FDA makes a lot of money from doing this. Right, so basically when you, if you're gonna turn thumbs down on a drug, you're uh, <laughs> you're biting the hand that feeds you, yeah. In essence, because where you know, if you look at the pie chart of how much of their money they're getting from industry versus uh, through the taxpayer, yeah. Uh, and and I want to like go a little bit um, to push on this even further, which is that what are we saying here? Like, what is this about arrangement? What is it about this arrangement that makes it problematic? Well, part of it is that. As Eric points it's a out, conflict of interest. Yeah, it's a conflict of interest, and it makes you come to see the industry as your client rather than the entity that you're regulating. The second thing is, I would say, is I actually do want the industry who has enjoyed lofty profit margins to pay for the FDA. But what I don't want to see it has have happen is through user fees. We should just tax the industry and use the collective tax money to pay for the FDA, a robust FDA. That 
separates it with one degree. That's how we do everything else in government. We tax people, and mm-hmm. then we take all that money, and that's tax money, and then we do what we want with through democratic processes. The other thing I will say, just to even push on this regulatory capture idea, um, Jeff Bn. one of the things he did was we assembled a list of medical reviewers, or really people who did what you did um, mm-hmm. for psychiatry, but we did it in the oncology drug products division, um, and we got a list of you know a few dozen names um, who had reviewed, because as you point out, that if a drug is approved, these reviews are public, so that's how we could assemble the list of names. And we fast forward something like 10 years in the future, and we look up all the people, and we ask, how many of them still have an HHS like email, you know, suggesting they're still at the FDA? Mm-hmm. How many of them have clearly moved on? And if you moved on from the FDA, what did you do? That's our question. Mm-hmm. And I think what Jeff found was, you know, there's maybe a 50-50 split. Some people are, are really lifelong regulators. and Some people have moved on, that's fine. But if you moved on, we found that like 60% of the time when you moved on, um, you either worked for or consulted for the industry. I'll just add a couple things. Mm-hmm. The FDA did not, I don't think they were too happy about our paper, which is in the mm-hmm. British Medical Journal. They did their own analysis and they said, you know, you guys are way off the mark. The actual number is 40%. <laughs> and I actually said, I actually disagree with them and I wrote a very, uh, I think a stinging rebuttal where I pointed out that, you know, what, what they did and what we did was the exact same thing. We used Google searches and LinkedIn and all these things to figure out where people went. There's no reason to believe they'll do that better than we'll do that. In fact, I, I believe Jeff Bn will do that better than anyone will do that because he is mm-hmm. a highly motivated resident. And then to, um, you know, a few months later, Charles Piler um, for Science Magazine, he's an investigative journalist, he replicated this study and he got about 70%. Oh, wow. Okay, so hmm. the point I wanna make though is like, if, if you and I are discussing something um, and you work for the University of Pittsburgh, and I know there's a 60% chance that in my future I will someday work for a consult for the University of Pittsburgh. I'm not gonna say too many bad things about the University of Pittsburgh. And if the University of Pittsburgh comes to me, I'm gonna try to be amicable and play ball and mm-hmm. get their things through. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanna suggest is like one of the ways we have regulatory capture is if the skill the FDA reviewers leave with is how can you um, slip a drug approval in as effortlessly as possible? What's the weakest comparator you can use and the you know the the the, the slickest trial design? Um, you're going to encourage reviewers to want to be amicable during their time at the FDA. Are they really going to want to lay down the law? And I think the answer is it's human nature not to lay down the law, and that's why we see. What you know in my field, so many drug approvals that are so questionable, um, and you see very little incentive to lay down the law. What do you think? Yeah, I wonder what percentage of reviewers actually leave and go out to industry. I mean, I think there there, there is a significant uh, percentage, but overall, they're probably in the minority. They're the other ones that you know, people that stick around, and. I'm uh, concerned about a bit of... Oh, it was uh, about 50-50. 50 left. Oh, really? 50, yeah, 50-50 yeah, oh, okay. people left, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think there's this culture of, um, you know, military-like culture of um, a groupthink, and that, that, you know, the mission seems to be sometimes to, we are here to, to help industry approve drugs. Yeah. And if you are seen as being an, an obstructionist, I mean that—that's how you could be labeled. If you—if you're taking too hard of a line, oh, you're not—you're uh, not actually you're with not the a program. Team you're yeah. not a team player, right? Yeah. Oh, you—you you have an agenda, right? I've heard that before, referring yeah. to people who were, you know, taking a little bit 
you know, bit of a hard line against uh, drug approvals. So yeah, and I've uh, gotten a little pushback. Um, people saying, "Why are you so hard on FDA?" You know, and it's like, you know, I'm not a hard on you because I don't like you as people. In fact, there's many people I do know there who I like a great deal as people. I'm hard on you because your policies are bad, and they're bad for patients, and they're objectively bad. And you know, in some of our papers, we've proven that you're not even meeting like your stated goals. You're giving regular approvals based on surrogate endpoints that are not validated. That is contrary to your own regulatory language. I'm merely pointing that out to you. Um, and don't get, don't kill the messenger. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not. I'm just, I just packaged it nicely and pointing it out to you. I think they forget about those of us out here, uh, clinicians and, and the public. I, I, uh, you know, I, I don't have any evidence to support this, right. but it's more of a, you know, a, a, gut, a gut feeling based upon, you know, knowing what we know about PDUFA and how it's constructed and, and how, you know, the, basically the uh, industry has access to FDA throughout all the time. Right. And the FDA is not talking with those of us out in, you know, in like regular doctors who are practicing in the trenches. Now, yes, they do have advisory committee meetings for occasional drugs, but for the most part, it's all, it's a, a, com- a one-on-one conversation between industry and FDA. And who do they put on these advisory committees? I mean, let's be uh, honest. They put on, they're not putting me on the advisory committee, and I don't yeah. think I'll be invited very anytime soon. They're putting on people who are academic experts, who are more conflicted than the average bear, usually deeply conflicted, and we've published a bunch of things on this. Uh, we have a paper in Mayo Clinic Proceedings looking at the conflicts among the ODAC speakers, um, or, and, and a paper in Hastings Center, we look at the ODAC broadly. Um, they're putting on people who will largely participate in the group thing. They'll say the same thing that everyone else is saying, which is that uh, you can never use overall survival as the endpoint. It takes too long, and you're and you're stifling drugs to market. And PFS is clinically meaningful and statistically <laughs> significant, clinically meaningful. You know those kind of that kind of rhetoric just gets repeated over and over. Um, oh, survival. Mm-hmm. The reason survival is there's no benefit is it was lost because of crossover. Uh, you know it's not our fault. It's everyone <laughs> crossed over. What do you want from us? Um, I don't think they're putting on people who are going to push back hard. I'm on an advisory committee. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you slip through? Oh, yeah, okay, okay, good. All right, well, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. Well, but, you know what? But, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of, uh, I, I, it, it seems like, Let's see how you long you last, yeah, Eric. You keep I, talking I like this. Let's me. see how long you last. That's right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Intellectual conflict of interest. I've heard oh, of people being let's disqualified talk about that. for that. Yeah. Um, Jeannie Lenzer has a nice right. article in the BMJ mm-hmm. where she talks about the intellectual conflict of interest, which is um, the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because mm-hmm. here's what an intellectual conflict of interest. They, I think there was like Kurt Furberg from like Wake Forest was one of the people. They said that like, oh, this guy has like, he studied this drug a lot and he already has strong feelings about it. Therefore, he shouldn't be allowed to participate in the discussion um, because he's already made up his mind. I was like, oh my, I was like, oh my lord. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you had a summit at the WHO on how to combat climate change, and you said, you know what, we don't want any scientists out there who studies climate change or right. has made up their mind. <laughs> we need impartial people who know nothing about climate change, and they know nothing about it, and they don't have any opinion on it. Those are the only people who have no intellectual conflict of interest because they're not very bright, right? Because that's what, I mean, that's what it's essentially saying. An intellectual conflict of interest is not when you have dedicated your career and your expertise to thinking about evidence. In fact, that is like your job. That's why they (laughs) should want you. That's not a conflict, okay? A conflict, what is a conflict? A conflict is 
you are tied to an entity that has a unidirectional benefit from one action. So if you're getting paid by Celgene, and Celgene only makes money from selling Celgene products, Celgene doesn't make money from not selling Celgene products, and mm -hmm. you're asked about Revlimid, you have the conflict because you're getting paid from an entity, and that entity has one goal in life, and that goal is to push Revlimid, right? That's a conflict. If you have, um, previously thought that teratogenicity is a problem, and you've done a lot of work on teratogenicity, and you've done a lot of work on, on that, and now you've got a thalidomide derivative and you're asked to weigh <laughs> in on that. You don't have an intellectual conflict, you have knowledge, right? You know, It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, and yet it's happening, and it's happening because I think, um, how can you, in a world where we increasingly recognize the threat of financial conflict of interest, of which there's many, many studies, um, who are you left with who are not conflicted? You're left with people who are often very critical uh, of the industry. And in an effort to delegitimize those people, the only thing you can kind of trump up is this idea. They have an intellectual conflict. Let's Funny throw them out. Use the phrase trump up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I know our, our time is running out. I wanted to ask you if you want to talk about. Um, you know, what are the projects that currently get you excited? What's on your desk now? Uh, insofar as you can free speak about it freely, um, you know, what are you thinking about more and more these days? Um, I'm looking at um, you know, one of the things, uh, and it's kind of premature to talk about it uh, in any kind of detailed sense, but uh, looking at antidepressants. Um, and um, there's my data set, there's also a um, uh, a, a paper by by Joe Ross and and, and company uh, from that just came out a month or so ago, and another one that uh, he put out, uh, he and his group put out uh, uh, one or two years ago, and contrasting pre fada the FIDA legislation of 2007 versus post, and looking at the uh, amount of selective publication that's that's gone on before versus after. So those two studies plus my own data set looks like uh, with all our. Um, Complaining and uh, um, scrutiny that, that that people like us are are um, devoting to this, I, it, it seems uh, there's evidence that we are making a difference. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, yeah. right? Hmm. And perhaps they know that. But I think in the old days, the uh, industry knew that they could do whatever they wanted, mm -hmm. and they if they didn't like a result, it wasn't marketable, wasn't going to sell the drug, just bury it mm -hmm. uh, or spin it. Find a way to find a way to spend it, make it look. Sad. But who and who's gonna, who's going to find out? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there, there's been various papers, including you know my paper being just one of them, about you know, hey, wait a minute, we can get caught now, we can right. get busted. Mm -hmm. um, but you can contrast what we put out with FDA reviews. They can look in clinicaltrials.gov. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, so let me ask you, um, you're optimistic. There's guarded, guardedly optimistic. Guardedly optimistic. Guardedly. You read the newspaper? <laughs> you still optimistic? Well, we should have had this interview after election yeah, day, I know. before I'm, election yeah, day, because right, it could be. Yeah. yeah it, but you're optimistic. Why are you optimistic? I, I, I now wait a minute. I think we're getting into guarded another. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, not uh, not about the country. Let's the, go back to these kind of issues that we care about. Yeah. The, the glass. Uh, okay. The glass half full versus glass half right. empty thing. So um, saying uh, there's still a lot of room for a, a tremendous amount of room for improvement, mm -hmm. but at least there seems to be movement in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And you're referring to biomedical publishing and these kinds of issues yes. that we've been talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At fundamentally, there's still 
root problems there. The, the, the emphasis on people needing positive results, whether you're selling a drug to make money for your shareholders or whether you're in a university setting and you need it, you, you want positive, you, you want to be seen as King Midas where everything you touch is, turns to gold. Oh, there's my idea. Oh, yes, P less than 0.05. Boy, that guy's a good scientist. Yeah, um, it's problematic. Oh, and and he, he or she publishes in you know, high-impact journals. So um, that's you know that that's not necess- that, that's not necessarily good science. The, the person who is seen as a success isn't necessarily uh, helping the scientific mission in a true sense because are they finding out the truth? Yeah, um, and um, uh, l- let's talk about this just a few more minutes because I think it's just such an important topic. Um, I've noticed a few things throughout my time that kind of trouble me a little bit. Um, one of the things is that we know that when it comes to like basic science discoveries that 20 years or 30 years later leads to transformational new therapies. Those of us who've looked at science very closely realize there's a lot of serendipity involved. I mean, a lot of people Mm -hmm. did good science 30 years ago. Not all of them, that scientific work culminated in some sort of important therapy. Yet we shower so much disproportionate praise and awards and prizes on the few people whose work you know, really by a lottery, um, not a meritocracy, but by lottery ends up being very transformational. Hmm. Um, it, it's one thing to give out Nobel Prizes. It's another thing when there's like a dozen of them and everyone who wins one gets all the other ones. I mean, hmm. uh, we also see this in the grant space. We see a handful of laboratories just sucking down research dollars when NIH puts out proposals to say, like, look, we're going to cap you at three R01s. Um, people re- revolt, and the people that revolt are the few big fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, are they big because they're doing the best work, or are they big because they're the best um, grant grants yeah, grantsmanship? Yeah, right. they're administ- They're bureaucrats who suck up cash, and they're good right. at writing the grants. Mm-hmm. And then the grants review process, all these kind of problems. And then, and then you point out that, like, um, when I listen, talk to people my own generation who aspire to become known in oncology, what do they want to aspire to be known? They want to be the PI on an industry-sponsored registration study, which they'll be the first author of the paper, a paper that they probably wrote zero words for because it's written by a medical writer these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're, we're not incentivizing and we're not fostering a devotion to science. And by science, I think mm-hmm. we both mean a method of inquiry that seeks to separate truthful, true claims from claims that are not true. Mm -hmm. That's an inquiry that can be done better, it can be done more pure, more devoutly, Um, but but in order to achieve results, you pervert that inquiry. If you pervert the inquiry, you can achieve results very easily. Mm -hmm. You can add bias to your design, your controls, your endpoints, and we make people aspire to positive results, we make people aspire to being in these all these roles, Um, Mm -hmm. We do a lousy job of, I think, incentivizing good science. Bringing, coming back to the fact that this is election day, yes. it, it, it has parallels to the political world. Hmm. You, you, you elect people to, to, uh, to office in the hopes that they will do the right thing for the American public. But once they get in there, it's, it's about preservation of power and you know we you know we need to stay in power. I don't want to be voted out of office because then you know what am I going to do with myself? And they set out to do good and they stay to do well. There you go. Yeah, and I also see that in academics because there's a number of people, I won't name all their names, but someday I might. If, if they push me anymore, someday <laughs> I might name them all. But um, uh, there are a number of people I see in health policy, 
and they reach a phase in their career where I start to believe through observing them that they no longer actually care about achieving the change on the issues they talk about. I think what they care about is consolidating their power. And and it makes me very sad because it's a power that like they just want to be on these like frivolous panels, have a panel discussion, a one day symposium on some stupid thing that's going to lead to like no change and nothing interesting. And everyone just says the same thing they always say. They just want to be invited to all of those things, you know, and continue to like this global Pre- preferably tour. Preferably in Hawaii. Pre- right, preferably <laughs> in Hawaii. Yeah. And so then they like you know they they just do what's enough for keeping that power getting their grants, getting their little center or spin-off, you know, have some named thing um, and have a few people who work under them and have a few publications. Or maybe a lot of people working under them. Or maybe them. a lot of people, yeah. And, and all generating papers and putting them on his last author. That's true, right. So then they publish more papers than is humanly possible. Right. Um, and then they've lost sight that the goal of policy research is to inform public policy so that we can make progress. They, I think they've lost sight of that entire goal that no longer becomes their goal. Their goal is a consolidation of their own power and influence, uh, but influence not to actually achieve any change, which I think is kind of sad. But maybe I'm telling too many secrets. Interesting <laughs> parallel to regulatory capture. You yeah. go in and you get sucked in by the, by the beast. I think it's true because I think like it's you would, you something. wouldn't you wouldn't last long as a very strict regulator. There'd be a lot of pressure to get rid of this person, mm-hmm. and that pressure is often mounted through I think um, inappropriate and dirty ways. For instance. Um, these kind of astroturf puppet patient advocacy groups that are really just the marketing arm of the industry, and then you know putting the pressures on the regulators who are tough, like as if they. Um, we saw this with the Sarepta decision with Exondis Fifty One. Um, you know that Duchenne's muscular dystrophy drug mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. barely improved the Western blot of the protein, and mm-hmm. let alone any actual clinical outcome. And the pressure on regulators, um, and some of them even reported in the news that they had like received death threats and things of that nature. Um, when in reality, what they were doing was trying to say like. If you want to sell a very costly drug product to people with a um, highly lethal disease um, who are in a desperate situation, you should have good evidence for that. You shouldn't do that based on, you know, pure snake oil. Uh, and and that's mm-hmm. not a controversial position, or it shouldn't be, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but we saw, I think, a lot of these groups being weaponized against the regulators. And so I, I do think it's tough. I've said a lot of things that are maybe uh, scattered, but any final thoughts, Dr. Turner? Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, themes we keep coming back to, and um, yeah, I can't uh, can't add much at the moment. All right. Well, I think it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the plenary session stage. Well, thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure from this end as well. Yeah, and it's been uh, it's been great um, having uh, many discussions with you over the last few years in our impromptu lunch right. <laughs> uh, when we always run into each other. And uh, I do hope that um, that not only do we see you know more of this in the decades to come, I do hope we see institutions invest in this more, build you know a center for selective reporting bias or meta research or things like that. You know, mm-hmm. like we saw with Stanford. You know, I think those kind of things are good. Um, let trainees see this as a career outlet for them. Um, Someone needs to, it's the money, right? Where's, yeah. <laughs> who's funding this kind of well? Yeah, I think I think it is it is yeah. the money, and I think universities right. should invest. And I think maybe others may you know private foundations, philanthropists should in, invest as well. Right. Um, and I think you know what we need to do is when you get somebody going out in oncology, 
the only thing they see and aspire to is to be the next um, real plenary speaker who, you know, is the PI on a multi-institution phase three trial who, you know, gets their name in the New England Journal. That's what they see and aspire to, mm-hmm. do some ad boards and, you know, some CME activity, which is essentially money laundered uh, activities and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of, and being, a, you know, a Twitter cheerleader, I call them, or, or just a cheerleader in general mm-hmm. for marginal and effective products. We need to also point out that you can actually pursue science very purely and 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 try to pursue truth and you should be rewarded for that in your career. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the next step. Mm-hmm. But it's been great having you. All right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.